I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The original Planet of the Apes Quintet. Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Discover Planet of the Apes. Civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. Do you realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Then a kind of living death. I love you, Dr. Zayas! This is the first of several podcasts wherein we will attempt to review each of the movies in the Planet of the Apes series. First up, there are the five original films released from 1968 to 1973. Now, at the time of this podcast recording, we've only seen the first of these five, so we have no idea about the other four. They could be brilliant forgotten gems you need to track down. They could be crap, best left forgotten. So the original five were Planet of the Apes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. We're going to watch and review them each one at a time. After that, we'll cover Tim Burton's 2001 reimagining of the 1968 original, which we saw back when it was first released, and we had a terrible time. Is it still as bad by today's standards? You ruined my 21st birthday with this! You're never going to forgive me for that, are you? Never. It's not your fault that it's that bad. Which was, the, which was worse, though, the film or the fact that I took you to play Laser Quest at the Metro Centre? I think the film... Then it's on to Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which acts as both a prequel and a reboot, or a pre-boot, if you will. Finally, until further apes emerge, and this becomes an ongoing podcast series, we will cover this summer's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. That's another one of those something of the something of the something. So this first film is based on a French book written five years previously. It was released on a budget just shy of $6 million on February the 8th, 1968, in the United States, and was a commercial success, earning a lifetime domestic gross of $32 million. The film was groundbreaking for its prosthetic makeup techniques by artist John Chambers and was well-received by critics and audiences, garnering four sequels as well as a short-lived television show, animated series, comic books, and various merchandising. In particular, Roddy McDowell had a long-running relationship with the Apes series, appearing in various roles in four of the original five films, with a brief voiceover from the second film and also in the television series. Before we start, we suggest you see Rise of the Planet of the Apes first. That's the recent one with Andy Serkis as Caesar. Uh, it's fantastic, as well as being uh, our point of reference, so we have to spoil it in order to discuss these films as they take place long after the events depicted. 
Is it likely, by the way, that Andy Serkis is basically going to end up being Roddy McDowell this time round, turning up in any subsequent sequels? I'd say they'd be crazy not to have him. Mm. If they continue with the motion, if they continue with the performance capture, of course they're going to continue with the performance capture. What a stupid thing to say. I would like it to be like Roots. So you get to follow son of Caesar and then daughter of daughter of son of Caesar and just keep going and going down the lineage. That would be pretty cool. First and foremost, the year that Planet of the Apes is set is apparently 3978, which puts it some 2,005 years after the Icarus spacecraft launched, give or take a few decades. This, of course, depends on whether the events of Rise of the Planet of the Apes create a slightly different divergent timeline as they take place some years after the outset of this film. Or actually, technically, they don't take place after the outset, because during the outset, they've been gone from Earth 700 years of our time, but for them, it's only been 18 months. Yeah, it's something like 2678 or something like that. Yeah. Okay, folks, if your brain got Swiss cheese with us talking about the Back to the Future films, it may get more Swiss cheesed during this, because we're not even sure what we're talking about, so it's going to be even worse, or even better. After Star Trek X-Men Terminator, a certain amount of leeway is required in the relationship between prequel slash reboot and original story. But in rough terms, this Planet of the Apes, 1968, tells the story of what happens to the planet some two millennia after Caesar and his simian buddies break out. Think of this series as a crash course in ape history. We watch these movies so you don't have to and fill you in on the most important points then you can decide from what we say if any of them might be worth a look. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to, like I said, we, we, we have literally, we're watching one film, then reviewing it, then watching one film when we're reviewing it, so we don't know what's going to happen in the next four as we, as we say this. Um, but we'll describe what happens in the film, not in too much detail, but just to sort of keep you guys abreast of it, and you can then watch these films or not. They're clearly not essential to watch before you uh, uh, watch future ones. I'd say Rise is essential to watch. In fact, I'd go so far as to say it's kind of like a, a Simeon Shawshank redemption in that I very rarely hear anybody say anything bad about it. Uh, one person I asked about on Twitter said that they uh, got to the point where, at the very beginning, that scientists couldn't tell that a chimp was pregnant and they tuned out. So they basically missed the entire movie. Uh, another person said that they had a friend who loves these first five but couldn't watch uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, to which... I feel a bit sad because uh, both of these people missed a really, really great film. Classic 68 fans of uh, Planet of the Apes may feel sad about us because after watching this film, uh, it's not a terrible film at all. It's actually really quite good. It's dated like crazy. And unfortunately, because sci-fi has come on so seriously since then, the leaps of logic that the lead character makes or the lack of putting two and two together, which unfortunately the entire plot of the film hangs on, make the entire plot of the film quite frustrating to watch play out. Mm. Because I, we both wanted to know more about what was going on in the world, but because you can't... It's Earth all along. He comes back to a planet he doesn't know. Right. So we'll start with a synopsis, and then we'll have a few notes after that. Uh, so a spacecraft, later named Icarus by a fan travels so far and fast away from the Earth that 2,000 years have passed back home and only 18 months have elapsed for its sleeping crew. They crash land on a planet and are surrounded by rocks, canyons and rivers. 
Three male astronauts survive, including our hero, Taylor, played by Charlton Heston. The female astronaut, who was supposed to assist the males in jump-starting a new civilization, more on the logistics of that later, is found to be several hundred years dead and well past her breeding prime. The three men, who resembled G.I. Joe in the 70s, complete with beards they don't want because only young hippies have beards, traverse the rocky landscape. They mull over the fact that everyone they know is now dead, and they wonder if they can find civilization on this new world. They come across some primitive humans dressed in animal skins, eating fruit from the trees, and are suddenly apprehended by clothed humanoid apes, wielding rifles and riding horses. One astronaut is shot dead, the other is caught and lobotomized. Taylor is captured, though rendered temporarily and inconveniently mute by a gunshot to the throat, and tries desperately to convince his simian jailers that he is intelligent. At home, the modern audience is still waiting for the evidence as well. Humans on this planet are seen as something of a pest race. They scrounge for fruit but provide nothing and are experimented upon and exterminated by the apes. A sympathetic chimp scientist named Zira and her husband Cornelius are receptive to Taylor's gesticulations and later speak with him. She names him Bright Eyes because he, unlike all the other shambling, witless humans, definitely seems able to reason and at the very least ask deeper philosophical questions than where's the next bit of fruit coming from. Bright Eyes is paired up with an attractive but wordless tribeswoman he names Nova, whom he claims as his own. He remembers the world he came from as being loveless and laments the fact that he never had anybody to hold him there. The apes, led by the wiser orangutans, backed up by the more physically powerful gorillas, hold several meetings and court cases to discuss what's to be done with this angry beast. He is taken to the Forbidden Zone and shown archaeological digs that speak of a primitive species. However, the deeper findings indicate a more advanced civilization that the apes believe they sprang from. A doll is found that garbles Mama! Zira and Cornelius are accused of heresy by a fusty old orangutan named Dr. Zaius, who would rather nobody pried into history or attempted to challenge their ancient scriptures. Finally, Taylor finds himself in front of the ruined Statue of Liberty on a beach, and there can be no avoiding the evidence that this was Earth all along. He collapses, shrieking his curses for the warmongering maniacs who blew up their own civilization. In real life, Heston later went on to become a spokesperson for the National Rifle Association, a group terrified that liberals will take their guns away and leave them at the mercy of everyone who wishes to take away what they have. This film rests on three things, and two of them don't hold up. One is a twist that everybody knows. It was Earth all along. I mean, that was what everybody knew going into the 2001 reimagining, even people who had never seen the original. So the question then was, what's the new twist going to be? The ruined Statue of Liberty is on the front of this box set. So already you're spending 112 minutes waiting for everybody to catch up with what you already know going in. And a smart astronaut should deduce quickly, or at least as assume it's a high possibility. The second is Charlton Heston's character of George Taylor. Following on so closely from James Bond, it seems very likely that while you may not immediately think this is a nice guy, he's a tough, steely-eyed hard man that you want to follow the adventures of. Heston had been a major star since the Ten Commandments 12 years earlier and was Tom Cruise's levels of controlling. He had final say on the director after many rewrites. 
Unfortunately, nearly 50 years later, his character is a savage moron, someone you'll feel ashamed of representing our species as the most intelligent man on the planet. He's so hyper-aggressive and unreasonable that the plot has no room to move away from his tantrums, escape attempts, and painfully slow comprehension that, yes, this is Earth. Then again, if you imagine that he came from the early 1970s on a divergent timeline where deep space travel was possible, his showing up here as a pathetic relic from our past takes on a meta-narrative which could make for a more engrossingly satirical film than was originally intended. The third aspect holds up as the film's chief strength, the ape civilization, seemingly rooted in 19th century colonial culture, is taken very seriously with some obvious thought put into it. The makeup still holds up because the actors beneath the prosthetics don't get self-conscious about it. They embody their characters earnestly and make us want to know more. It's that seriousness and unabashed delivery of a fictional ape world that ensures this film will survive the test of time, even if its prehistoric leading man didn't. Turns out it's 2,000 years into the future, so they've been gone a long time. So uh, the assumption throughout the movie is that it's some other planet. And despite the fact that being an astronaut today, if you were part of NASA, you might at least assume, since it's a, it's a habitable, breathable planet, let's just assume until we are proved otherwise that this is Earth 2,000 years in the future. Yeah, especially when you then come across people who are speaking English using technology that you recognize um and and generally and you're walking around the grand canyon seems vaguely familiar so yeah it, it, the film shows its age very quickly in terms of the the social constructs that heston brings with him and i say heston because there's very little character here he's a very rough very sort of actiony grizzled somewhat nihilistic man who i don't think you're supposed to like are you um, well, that's good because I didn't. Yeah. I think the, the his name problem, is Taylor, but I'll just keep calling him Heston, shall I? The problem for me was, yes, there is a good film here, but unfortunately, the story that they have laid in front of it is getting in the way for me. What I wanted to know more about is the was the ape society. That was the bit that caught my attention. Why do they have all of the, you know, they've got this um, supposedly egalitarian society. Why do they have um, caste layers uh, according to different species of ape? Why is that still there? Why are they um, operating on spiritual scriptures and allowing that to get in the way of their uh, advancement as a species? Um, but that may well come through in, in the sequels. So I'm actually quite interested now to see those. I'll save you the excitement and anticipation. The sequels don't explore this. It's a weird one as well because it's one of the most famous endings of all uh, cinema history, isn't it? That, that, that the Statue of Liberty and the crying and, you know, you possibly, blew it up, you maniacs! But possibly that's why it's so frustrating. That's what I was Waiting for him to get around to that. Yeah, the, the front cover of the uh, DVD box set with all of them on it has got the Statue of Liberty. So there's no question, even if you haven't seen Rise... Even if you've just picked up this box set, you're not asking where are they. Even if you exist in a vacuum, they tell you where you are. If if an alien came down to Earth right now and said, right, show me your films starting from 1968. What's this? Planet of the Apes. Bring it on. Oh, so it's Earth then. Even if they know very little about Earth, they recognize the Statue of Liberty and the entire film becomes about waiting for bright eyes to cotton on. Yes. 
there was another thing that made it difficult for me to to fully um immerse myself in this film as well mm. um and that's the simpsons musical version yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because every time certain things were said or certain scenes happened or even certain names were exchanged dr zayas dr zayas yeah exactly <laughs> Simpsons songs were trickling through my brain. I, I can hate talk. every I can talk. I can sing. <laughs> Damn you, Simpsons. But I saw that episode of The Simpsons before I'd seen Planet of the Apes. Well, same here. This is the first time I've seen it. You No, we saw it together. Really? Yep. Oh. Ages ago. We God, did. my brain does such a good job of wiping out things I'm not wildly impressed it by. Was, we saw it after the Burton one. Mm. But, I mean, for, as far as I was concerned... When I was a kid growing up, there was Star Wars, and then there was Planet of the Apes, which is something that came slightly beforehand, and seemed to be mostly about monkeys having meetings. And I wasn't wrong. That's basically what the film is. Chimpanzees and their uh, intellectual superiors, the orangutans, meeting up and discussing what's to be done about this angry human who exists in a society... Well, okay, right, we, we haven't really done a good job of storytelling, have we? They get off the spacecraft, uh, Ch- Chuck and his two mates, both humans. The one woman that they sent on this expedition, by the way, is killed off before the film even starts. Immediately. Yeah. Her her stasis tank cracks, and so she... If she had been alive she and dies. she got to, to chat with Zira... Is that her name? Uh, the Doctor, yes, yeah. Zira. Would that have passed the Bechdel test? Yes. If that, unless they were talking about bright eyes. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so I suppose as long as they're two females, that's all right. Well, two uh, females who can communicate. To indicate the difference in uh, what, uh, how they make films now and how they made films back then, uh, when you see that the uh, girl has uh, been killed, in a modern-day sci-fi, most likely the music would go a little bit sad and the uh, people would uh, react in a kind of an, oh, oh God, this is this is pretty terrible uh, kind of way. Um, or there'd be a sort of, like a sting. And they kind of do that, but it's the 60s, and it goes... And it shows a desiccated corpse. Yes. So th- that's how they start this movie. As they mean to go on. Yeah. And that completes my final report until we reach touchdown. We're now on full automatic in the hands of the computers. I've tucked my crew in for the long sleep, and I'll be joining them soon. In less than an hour, we'll finish our sixth month out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. By our time, that is. According to Dr. Hessline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. (laughs) Maybe so. This much is probably true. The men who sent us on this journey are long since dead and gone. You who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. I leave the 20th century with no regrets. But one more thing. If anybody's listening, that is. Nothing scientific. It's purely personal. Seen from out here, everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. 
It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. That's about it. Tell me, though. Does man, that marvel of the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother? Keep his neighbor's children starving? I had a question, actually, regarding the fact that there was three male astronauts and one woman to apparently populate a new world they were going to. They seem, they're quite vague about where they're going. There seems to be no direct plan. Like NASA just spe- send off spacecrafts into space and say, just keep going and eventually you'll find a planet. And there you can fuck your brains out and have lots of children and, and create a new colony. That appears to be the plan. To create a stable population, how many men and women would you actually need? And what's the ratio? Well, three in one is a very obvious poor ratio because if you think about it in terms of the one woman that you've brought with you, quite apart from the fact that there is no mention of there having been any tests to establish whether she's particularly fertile or whether she's likely to be particularly fertile with any of these lucky chaps you're you're talking one child a year then you're assuming that nothing goes wrong with the first birth that then means that any subsequent births are very unlikely to take place and then you're talking about the next generation consisting of a handful of children who have nobody to breed with (laughs) apart from their own parents (laughs) within a few generations it's humphrey i know well indeed um whether you'd even manage to stretch to to two generations would be questionable um i mean there is an anthropological theory that uh, the human race can be traced back to um, not one eve but seven eves um, that there were uh, seven female. I don't even. I don't think it's. It's not Neanderthals, but it's it's a, a level of human evolution that was sort of as close as it got to being humans before they started being called humans, and that they are the seven mothers of our race, as it were. Um, so I think really, if if you wanted to establish a new colony rationally, you're going to need at least seven women. And I would say in order to not make it so that you've then got everybody breeding with their own half siblings, I think in all seriousness, you'd probably need three men so that you've got enough uh, diverse lines that it's not all going to end up getting very entangled. Yeah. If you want to increase the amount of men, you have to increase the amount of women to uh, to get the, the variety there. But it needs to be at less, so a three to seven ratio then. Yeah. So basically in each in each although it probably wouldn't be work out quite so neat as this, you're talking um, uh, bo- uh, family bonds with one male, two females, and then a spare female. Oh, poor spare female. <laughs> Unless she's the freewheeler who basically gets to choose where she wants to hang out. Well, indeed, yes. Ooh. Uh, this is creepy. Either way, it's creepy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, yeah. This is one of those ones where it's like, please don't think too deeply into this one. And this is sci-fi, and they're asking you to think deeply into things. Just but the thing is, well, go do, get your brain down that alleyway, but not this one. Absolutely. But if you if you start out with this one female who is basically representative of the human race's potential, and then you kill her off in literally the first minute of the film, 
what does that say about where you think the human race's potential is going to go? Hmm. Now, the, uh, the, the tribes people out there, we, we, we've debated while we were watching it, they can make leather clothes, but they don't seem to be able to communicate with each other. Now, I mean, to the point where Nova doesn't say a bloody word. I mean, this doesn't even make sound. She, I thought she was mute the whole way through the film. I suspect that's part of her appeal. <sighs> to Chuck, maybe. Um... So yeah, they, they, um, Chuck breaks out. They, they go do some exploring. They meet some humans, and the humans—it's really confusing as to exactly how evolved the humans really are, or how how devolved the humans are. Because you see, it's been two thousand years, and they've gone from having um, skyscrapers to wearing like it's they've they've used Raquel Welsh in one million years BC as their their start their springboard for this, right? Pretty much, yes. See, you, you said that there were some uncomfortable parallels with uh, the fact that they're basically um, these are like 19th century uh, relatively civilized humans, the apes, and they're throwing nets uh, and using their um, bolt-action rifles to uh, capture these humans that behave more like simians than they do. And there's uncomfortable parallels with the black slave trade routes that started in the what mid 16th century let's make no bones about it i think the the difficulty here is that um there's there's they're obviously trying to sort of make this idea of of the roles of humans and and apes have been reversed but the humans that they catch and it's never entirely clear whether the intention is it, it's not enslavement per se when they get them back to their um uh, their dwellings it's they're not sort of making them work or or anything like that or or crediting them with the capability of really doing anything they just put them in cages i think they seem more as a nuisance because they travel around the place in packs yeah, and they, they eat all the fruit be, they seem to be generally trying to exterminate them but there is a contingent of scientists who are trying to um study them and and perform certain experiments on them to see exactly what makes these creatures tick and whether they really maybe are more intelligent than than they would think but if you look at them when they're running around the fields they're clearly not animals they're wearing clothes which makes it kind of more um cro-magnon and neanderthals so i mean you being yeah, the, the big fan of extent. clan of the cave bear where does the the parallel lie well the i mean the the setup in clan of the cave bear is it's it's slightly different first of all in the sense that it is by and large, a fictional construct, um, and it's it's not necessarily the the way it's interpreted by Gene M. Owl is not necessarily how the interaction between Cro-Magnon humans and Neanderthal humans actually happened. In fact, a lot of people... I was opposed to that documentary, Planet of the Apes. Well, and, yeah, <laughs> right, good point. Um, but the, the, the theories with, that lie within that are sort of this idea of these are, are two types of equally intelligent but intelligent in different ways humans who have a very uneasy um, existence between each other because um, one of them is basically better at dominating the environment than the other and is therefore able to push the other 
out of things like caves that they want to live in and hunting grounds that they want to um to use and um you know forests that they want to forage in and and that kind of thing but the again there doesn't seem to be any of that kind of overlap here the apes are simply treating the humans as animals and as you say pests to be cleared out of their um their farming grounds but at the same time when you look at how they the apes talk amongst themselves they're they're very confined to this small area for such a developed race or apparently developed race they don't seem to go out and explore the rest of the world when um cornelius brings in a map to show uh taylor where they are it's a tiny area that they seem to be confined to and he's trying to find out because uh where uh, Taylor and his colleagues, their ship crash landed in what the apes call the Forbidden Zone, um, which is basically all desert. And um, they're trying to find out, because they think that Taylor has come from some land beyond the Forbidden Zone. Um, and they're trying to find out from him whether there are more jungles out there. Looking at the the clothes that the apes have got and the... the um, the architectural style this doesn't really speak of a group of of people who are confined to one small area they're wearing leather i haven't seen any evidence of any animals around for them to get the leather from also there's incongruities this is not really a criticism i'm just interested to see where they that they are and and i wanted to know more that was the thing i wanted to know more about the the way the ape society was structured because the way they speak is like 19th century Victorians. And they're sort of, you know, this is entirely without merit. We are going to have a meeting and sit down and talk about what's to be done of this fellow here. And yet they also talk of heresy and forbidden zones, which is so, like, um, that is not the age of reason. That is that is the, the, the dark ages and sort of throwing stones at one's own shadow. And is, like burning witches. That is kind of the immediately pre- age of reason though if you think about it and 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 there was um plenty of people in the sort of 18th 19th century who would still have put extremely um spiritual slants on exploration and i mean think about it evolution which is the theory that uh, dr thera comes up with um or has been working on and feels that taylor is um evidence that she's right um this is the the the, um, the talk that they are specifically referring to as heresy and darwin was not all that long ago well yeah that's what i'm talking about it feels 19th century mm, yeah so yeah uh really the rest of the film is about how uh, um bright eyes chuck heston gets locked in cages tries to escape repeatedly gets into lots of fist fights with a bunch of apes uh, and keeps getting thrown back in and trying to prove that he is intelligent. And and then they have a lot of meetings about what's to be done about him. And eventually they travel to the Forbidden Zone, find an archaeological dig, and find an a doll. And he still doesn't get it. He's still not twigging that it's Earth. Uh, you, you, you theorize that basically up until the point when there's irrefutable proof that it's Earth, he's able to deny it. That maybe he knew it all along, but he, he wasn't. He, he, that he just didn't want to accept it or face it. He I, always I, seems to be looking for smart humans who don't yeah. seem to be out there. I think that's that's possibly giving him or the film more credit than it deserves. But um, Zeus is is talking about um, accepting 
um, Cornelius and Zira's theories if they can find proof. Explain who these um, characters are. Imagine people listening don't know. Okay. Um, Zira is a kind scientist female ape who seems fascinated by Charlton. She's an, she's an animal psychologist. She's basically... She thinks he can um, be uh, taught to master simple tasks. Yeah, she's been studying humans and she thinks there's more to them than the, the accepted view believes that there is. Uh, Cornelius is her fiancé, who is an archaeologist. Played by Roddy um, McDowell. He's been um, tr- uh, studying... Uh, areas around the Forbidden Zone because he believes that once upon a time in the past there was a more advanced race of men which has died back but that they um, but his theories and Zira's theories they kind of put their ideas together and come up with the idea that they the apes have evolved from this more evolved form of man um, and that the men that they have the hu- I keep calling them men I'm sorry I'm <laughs> uh force of habit the humans that um surround them now are kind of an offshoot of that race of of intelligent humans um and uh dr zaius is one of the upper caste of orangutans um cornelius and zira are chimpanzees which basically means that they are only really allowed to rise so high in society and their um their opinions are always going to be a little bit looked down on because they're not one of the the wiser group of um of apes um and zaius is sort of the guardian of the faith and um he's the one who on the one hand it's it becomes pretty evident at some point that he thinks they're right on the other hand he will do what he can to cover up the fact that they're right in order to allow their society to continue on the way it is and this is the bit that i was really interested in Mm. this was the part that i wanted to know more about and let's hope that the next few films do actually well absolutely but it kept getting occluded by Charlton Heston hitting on a cave girl who can't talk. Well, so much of the film, basically, well, it, it's it's predicated on its twist ending, which is like Twilight Zone. It was Earth all along. But as I said earlier, a smart person would touch down and immediately just assume it was Earth. A mm. smart, just anybody with an even vague amount of smarts watching a sci-fi film now would just assume it was Earth. Yeah. If you I mean, started watching not- Lost, you'd go, well, they're probably dead. And, and, and your assumption would have to be disproved by the events afterwards. But nothing, uh, aside from the fact that there are evolutionarily, impossibly evolved apes that couldn't have evolved that quickly in 2,000 years unless something happened, until you uh, you prove that it's definitely not Earth, you just go ahead and assume that something did happen. What if there's more super monkeys up at that lab? Maybe they're making an army of them up there. Holy shit! Maybe it's a conspiracy like in the X-Files! Roswell style! This little monkey could be the fucking damn dirty eight responsible for the fall of the human race. In this world gone mad, we won't spank the monkey. The monkey will spank us. I'm not even supposed to be here today! And after the fall of man, these monkey fucks will start wearing our clothes and rebuilding the world in their image. Oh, and only those as super smart as me will be left alive to bitterly cry. You maniacs! Damn yous! God damn yous all are hell! Shit, and 
Not on my watch, motherfucker. But this was 1968, wasn't it? So yep. this was before the moon landing. Yeah. So space exploration was was fairly minimal at this point. Well, that's the other thing. Uh, the the, the um the, the film seems to be setting its uh like deep space travel in 1972. And then they go away for 700 years, and then they go away for another 1,300 years and, uh, and somehow wind up back there again. If you're going to make it really deep space travel, which we, by the way, still haven't mastered, even though it's implied that it, uh, the Icarus also launches in Rise, um, make it a bit longer than four years after the film is about to come out. You know, just just chuck ten, just chuck a ten in front of that. I suppose they wanted to, to keep what was lost as relatively familiar. But he's talking about, you know, it's a, it's a society where there was lots of lovemaking, but no love. What the fuck are you talking about? I, that's that's characterization, because basically it's showing you a man who could look at the world that that existed in the 1960s and early 70s and see this sort of tired, proud race of people who were as nihilistic as he was. And all of this discovery was just happening and all of this love was going on and he was completely fucking oblivious to it. And what does he end up allegedly falling in love with? A girl who can't talk and does nothing but follow him around. Such a creepy speech that one is. It is. He, he's, he's talking he's about... He's a creepy so, man. She was going to be our Eve with our... <laughs> what's his exact phrase? With a hot, enthusiastic uh, help, of course, or something. Yeah, like. something like that. Basically, he's just saying that all three male astronauts would gladly roger the shit out of her. Mm. Again, not the best plan for creating a new generation of people. Yeah, One child a year. It's, it's a nonsensical experiment. And, it uh, It was, I'm, I'm assuming, just, you know, the, the, the plot again required there to only be about three people on board so that they could do away with two of them quickly and make it all about Chuck. The problem is he's such a deeply creepy, d- disturbingly simple man. It, which uh, kind of begs the question, how did he become an astronaut? Yeah. And you pointed out um, that there's a, it's really hard not to compare this to Rise mm. because that's, of course, the modern-day equivalent because there's a many parallels with how Caesar is imprisoned. There are, but if you switch the roles over, if, if you look at the way um, uh, Taylor responds to his imprisonment, it is all about convincing his captors of... Um, what he considers to be the correct cultural um, structure, which is that he, as the human, is better than them and should be free and should be allowed to go around and do whatever he wants. And he shows absolutely no interest in saving or helping any of the other humans that have been captured, with the exception of this one girl that they've kind of given him as a, as a present. Um, and there was, there was one point where um, they go to, to grab her uh, he he names her nova that's another thing she's probably got wife. a name 
Um, but in, he, he makes no attempt to communicate with her, although he's been making all these efforts to communicate with the other apes. Um, he makes no attempt to communicate with her or find out what her name actually is. He just names her Nova. There's a point where they come to take her out of the cage so that they can get him and take him somewhere else. And he kind of makes a dive to stop them. And you were like, well, that kind of characterizes that he's at least being protective towards her. And I, I just thought, well, that to me seemed entirely possessive. That was like, no, this is, this is my toy and you can't take it away from me now you've given it to me. And in fact, when they separate them, the first thing he says to her is now I don't even have you. Again, was that intentional or were they pointing at him being possessive? I don't know. I would love to know because the, the way he is portrayed in this, to me, he is utterly objectionable and a horrible, horrible, creepy person who I just feel is the most awful representative of the human race ever. And if I if I had any say in the humans that we permitted to go into space who might potentially end up making contact with other intelligent life, I certainly don't want Charlton Heston being the one that goes out to represent us. <laughs> I mean, obviously that couldn't happen now, but metaphorically speaking. Slightly uh, backstep towards the humans and uh, how it's never really uh, cleared up how they, how they live. They're, they're advanced enough to wear animal skins... I suspect that's mainly to protect their dignity so that we don't have to, you know, 1960s audience didn't have to look at bare breasts and dicks swinging around. And I'm guessing a 1960s audience never looked at it and went, hang on a minute, there are no animals around here. There's horses. Oh, good point. Yeah, I suppose riding around on horses. There's, there's potentially others. But the humans don't hunt. Well, yeah, the humans appear to now be um, herbivorous. They eat fruit. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of like uh, uh, lowland gorillas. They they tend to they, they they humans in fact have become very gorilla-like. Only they wear animal skins. But even gorillas communicate with one another. Yeah. I believe the humans were communicating with one another, but Bright Eyes wasn't looking. Indeed. Which again, he gets so frustrated about the fact that the apes don't, that, that to me would actually have been a really interesting slant if he had tried his hardest to communicate with the apes and be roundly ignored and then had turned his attention to trying to communicate with the other humans. But he never does. But he never does. So yeah, basically the uh, the camera is locked on him for the uh, duration of the movie. And again, the camera is, is locked. The plot revolves around the fact that oh, he's not. He doesn't know until the twist ending. So uh, ultimately, it's it's more the beginning of a movie than mm. the end of a movie. Actually, yes, that's a fine point. When the layer change came in the disc, I was like, "What already? It's only just started." And then I realised it was about halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, what is there left to say about this first one? It's a manhole! A manhole! Um, I suppose it's worth seeing for the context, but... You'll you'll notice several parallels forwards to Rise. Yeah, but certainly in terms of quality, it doesn't even come close. Uh, Well, for a start, I mean, uh, Lyra... 
sat and watched Rise with absolute rapt attention, could not take her eyes away. And this isn't the first time she's seen it. She saw it along, uh, about a year ago as well. So if it, if it vastly entertains a four-year-old and a five-year-old, I mean, that, that's a truly captivating, because it's all about Caesar. And the, uh, he's a character that you can really get with. And unfortunately, as you say, Chuck is not exactly a model man, and you don't give a well, no, he is. fuck about him. That's the thing. For 1968, he is a model man. Yeah, which That's makes this film why I have such a problem with it. <laughs> but to a, I mean, to that end, it's going to be boring as fuck for a lot of people. Mm. I mean, it, it, it kind of needs a remake, but at the same time, it needs to be more than than what it is because if if you remade this, if if. <laughs> I mean, we could really cover that when it comes to the uh, Planet of the Apes remake. Mm. Really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! And in fact, there you go. They followed that um, particular line. Sorry. They followed that particular line of characterization because one of my main issues with the 2001 version was I don't believe Mark Wahlberg as an astronaut for a fucking second. I don't believe him as a primate for a fucking second. <laughs> Dear me, what are those things coming out of her nose? Hey, hey, watch my helmet. Space balls? Oh shit! There goes the planet. I think if I if I was going to characterise my particular issues with the film, it is that it's not entirely clear where your sympathy ought to lie and I don't mean that in the sense of um, I, I want it more black and white I want them to make it very obvious who are the good guys and who are the bad guys I mean they don't seem to know where your sympathies are supposed to lie it's very muddled it's or um, not muddled but just not I mean they could retitle it the uh, relatively civilised apes who had to deal with an insufferable prick yes yes they could and, and I would watch that well, you just did. <laughs> I think it's important that everybody sees this film once. But I'm not sure what would keep you coming back to it. Mm. By today's standards, there are literally hundreds of science fiction movies that are more thought-provoking than this. Yes. I will say now, in retrospect of having seen the whole series, that while it's not a remarkable film by today's standards, and though far more thought-provoking material turns up later, it's still worth watching this first one, even if you may end up finding it dull and objectionable. Rather like the early Bond movies, it sets the scene for later incarnations. It's also way better than a couple of the others. Troy, Mac Parker, ever hear of Planet of the Apes? Uh, the movie or the planet? The brand new multi-million dollar musical. And you are starring as the human. It's the part I was born to play, baby. Uh. 
help. The human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape! <gasps> he can talk. He can talk, 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 he can talk! I can sing! Ooh, help me, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! Oh, Dr. Zayas! Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! What's wrong with me? I think you're crazy. Want a second opinion? You're all so lazy. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas! This play has everything. Oh, I love legitimate theater. Every ape I see, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee. No, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Oh my God, I was wrong. It was Earth all along. You finally made a monkey. Yes, we finally made a monkey. Yes, you Thank you. The year, 3,955. Charlton Heston as Taylor, a 20th century astronaut, space-wrecked in the incredible future. Linda Harrison as Nova, a savage beauty from the enslaved and voiceless human race. James Franciscus as astronaut Brent, on a reckless mission to rescue Taylor, trapped by the swaggering, brutal master race of apes who dominate the Earth, a planet shattered by the atomic war of a distant, forgotten past. Into the forbidden zone, someone or something has outwitted the intelligence of the gorillas. Envade! Envade! Face the terrifying dangers of the forbidden zone with them. Engulfing you in the shattering experiences that await beneath the planet of the apes. Well, there's an intelligence working in this place. They know we're here. We are determined to know what the apes want. War or peace? The superintelligent mutants. Are they human or something else? In their church, an unspeakable god. Doomsday bomb. Behind their faces, an unbearable secret. We don't kill our enemies. We get our enemies to kill each other. The irresistible war machine of the guerrilla army versus the devastating secret mind weapons of the subterranean mutants in civilization's final battle to answer the ultimate question. Can a planet long endure 
half human and half ape. Is it the beginning or the end? So moving on, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, released in 1970. Soon after Planet of the Apes became a hit, a sequel started being considered by 20th Century Fox. Screenwriter Rod Sterling was consulted, but his ideas could not interest the studio. Then the producers turned to the author of the original novel, Pierre Boulle, who wrote a draft for a sequel called Planet of the Men, where protagonist George Taylor would lead an uprising of the enslaved men to take back control of the apes as the guerrilla general Ursus wants to fight humans. Bewell's script was rejected as it was felt that it lacked the visual shock and surprise of the original. Well, they had visual surprise and shock in the final film, but what that final film was wasn't as good as that first stupid idea sounds. Associate producer Mort Abrams then wrote story elements, and British writer Paul Dane was hired to develop them in a script tentatively called Planet of the Apes Revisited. Dane implemented his trauma of the 1945 atomic bombings and the fear of nuclear warfare on the story. Yeah, well, there, there's definitely a Cold War subtext on this one. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh. it's not even that sub. Yeah, okay, well, there's a text. One of the elements thought up by Abrams and Dane was a half-human, half-ape child. But despite even going through makeup tests, this was dropped for the bestiality overtones. According to screenwriter Dane, the idea for Beneath came from uh, the end of the first movie, which suggested that New York City was buried underground. Despite the fact that Charlton Heston showed little interest in reprising his role as Taylor, studio head Richard Zanuck thought the actor was essential to the sequel, so like Sigourney Weaver in the Alien films. After some disagreement with the actor's agents, Heston agreed to briefly appear with the provision that Taylor be killed and that Heston's pay go to charity. That's nice of him, I suppose. Like, I'll do it, but I'm not putting any effort into it. You can just give my money to someone else. The writers decided to have Taylor disappear, literally, at the story's start and only return by the film's ending and have a new protagonist for the major part in the story. For the new main character, Brent, rather unfortunately named, came actor James Franciscus. We, I, I theorized this was a sort of a Roman uh, ancestor of James Franco who wanted a break from formal roles such as doctors and teachers. Uh, for folks at home, just imagine Bradley Cooper, but stupid. When Zanuck was fired as studio president during production, he suggested post, add the element suggested by Heston, the Alpha Omega Doomsday Bomb, so as to finish off the series at once. This turned out to be not the case, as even before the film's release, the producers were considering ideas for another sequel. So why that ending? Now, what's the ending, you ask? Let's find out, shall we? Sharon, take it away. So... We begin. George Taylor and Nova ride for a bit. Then Taylor falls through an invisible wall. Literally, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, Cut to a second spacecraft with another practically identical astronaut named Brent. I mean, he has the haircut and the beard. It's like he found some Charlton Heston makeup in his spaceship. It's like they outfit them with those before they leave. Also, Um, he says 3973, uh, which is on the clock, which is not the same as 3978 when Heston uh, arrived in the first one. 3955. Oh, 3955. There it says. So, hang on. I don't know. We'd have to check what it says. I've I've written it. Hang on. 3978. So, 53. There's a huge discrepancy in the years then. Yes. It was 3978 in the first film, so 3953 to 3978. I was like, wow, he's landed in the past. Um, no, he hasn't. He landed about the same time. Yes. Maybe a bit later. Um, apart from anything else, the fact that he knows who 
Taylor is suggests. Well, no, the, the idea is that I, I got that they were launched together. I just thought that he had turned up much earlier. Ah, uh, right. There, there's yeah. a sub, there's a, a subplot of that in uh, the Burton version. Right. Yeah. Well, that would have been vaguely interesting. Well, yeah, the, the idea being that he goes on and, and, and founds, uh, like brings humans together and then Heston finds them at the end. Okay, so Brent finds Nova riding alone and goes in search of Taylor. Uh, Nova stupidly takes him to the Ape City where they witness the brutish gorillas. Yeah, he's like, take me to Taylor and she takes him back to the Ape City where he's not there at all. No. But the fact that she's even grasped that he's looking for Taylor when she was, seemed to be really struggling with the concept of names yeah. 10 minutes ago. Um, she, so she, she, she takes him to the Ape City, where they witness the brutish gorillas and pompous orangutans preparing to march for war on the humans, something the hippie chimps aren't too happy with. Brent <laughs> they have and a Nova, demonstration and the gorillas brutalise them. Brent and Nova are captured and escape, finding their way to an old New York subway station and encountering a small hidden group of creepy, technologically advanced, absurdly dressed, religiously fanatical, psychically powered humans who worship a holy... (laughs) When you say it like that... Well, indeed. Who worship a holy Alpha Omega bomb designed in the 20th century with the express purpose of destroying the entire world in exactly the same way as the solar benight in Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Using their psychic powers, they force Brent to strangle Nova twice until he tells them about the apes. Then they take off their faces. Mm. Just going to give you a minute to absorb that one. They take off their rubber faces. They appear to be wearing for no reason. Yes, to reveal hideous mutant faces. Brent is locked in a cell with Taylor and is psychically forced to fight him to the death. Their captor foolishly enters the cell and is killed. Nova turns up and is killed. Another psychic woman kills herself with poison. The apes arrive and shoot the head psychic mutant, commandeering the bomb and attempting to defuse it. Taylor and Brent are gunned down, and in his dying moments, Taylor purposefully triggers the bomb, destroying the world. The end. The end of the Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Heston, you killed us all. Well done. What are his reasons? He basically, like, because Nova gets shot, accidentally, I might add, he decides these apes all deserve to die. So do all the humans. Everything's fucked. Let's destroy the world. That's about the size of it. <sighs> right. Th- this film is a piece of shit. Let's not make any bones about it. This film is a tedious fucking piece of shit. For the first half of it, it seems like a, a sort of a retread and a remake of the original Planet of the Apes because Brent has to go through all the same, oh my god, apes, oh my god, they're talking. And then like, he speaks and they, uh, like later on when the apes meet uh, Mendez, they go, he can talk. And I'm like, oh no, we're gonna go through this again. <laughs> um, but, but then when they meet the psychic mutants, it's like, well, what the fuck are these psychic mutants doing here? And it's so like, like 50s B-movie shit. Like, what the, the Simpsons do parodies of this kind of stuff for their Halloween specials, and those are shit too. It was it, very... It's just so cheap and stupid, and so cheap and stupid, and cheap and stupid! So you didn't like it then? <laughs> It was very reminiscent of um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to me. That like, makes it, it sound way better. No, no, no. But I, I just mean in the sense that if you're going to set up um, a, a, a civilization, well, civilization, there's about 20 of them. If you're going to set up a society like this, it's so that you can laugh at it because it looks so silly. 
the Planet of the Humans thing wasn't shocking enough. They needed to have a, pl- a big plot twist. So they went out of their way to go, well, what if the humans aren't dead? What if they're still alive? What if they're technologically advanced? What if they're psychic? What if they've got a bomb? And it's like they're playing, was it Consequences? Yeah. And, and, and then they a. the entire script on this. Yeah, writer A writes down one thing, folds it over, passes it to writer B, who writes something completely unconnected. It's nonsense follows nonsense. It's not even a film watching. It's not even a film. And I, I, I actually kind of would have loved to have been in the audience for the first screenings of it when Charlton Heston goes, oh, fuck you, apes, and sends the entire planet to hell. And, and then destroys everything. And just like, it's like he presses the activation button, triggering the bomb and destroying the Earth. And the film ends with a voiceover saying, In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe lies a medium... Oh, in the universe. Yeah, be, be specific on this one. Lies a medium-sized star and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. Credits. That was, that was just unbelievable. Just such a, a, a finish ending. Again, they were going for a twist. That's not a twist. That's not anything. That's not even a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Also, why would anybody make a bomb that can destroy the world? I understand the politics of mutually assured destruction. I understand how crazy it is when you think about it, but how when debated in bunkers... The idea of we will get uh, missiles together that will destroy the opposing side if they attempt to attack us and we'll both have this ability and it's mutually assured destruction. I don't understand that. But who would create a weapon that could destroy the world? What is the point of using that as a preventative? That, that lit, like, you'd be like, oh, yes, but they would. And it is crazy. Like, yeah, you know, you've got to have meetings about it. And then you need an equal number of crazy people and funding. And when I mean crazy, I mean gibbering like can't get up in the morning without shooting someone in the face crazy. It doesn't make sense. I can, I I believe an alien race would have a planet destroying weapon because they've got to deal with things on a much larger scale. There's no point creating a weapon that will destroy the world. There's nowhere you can stand that's safe to use that bomb. Oh yeah. And, and this is this is the the profit of really bad sci-fi, where they're asking you not to think too deeply about stuff. But that's not what. See that that frustrates me. If that's what you want to make, if you want to make something that will, you have to say to people, please don't think too hard about what we're putting in this. Why are you making sci-fi? That's not what sci-fi is supposed to be about. Yeah. <sighs> so, I mean, can we finish on this? Because there, there's nothing to say, really, is there? This guy, there you pointed out that the uh, the actor, James Franciscus, um, uh, is one of those guys who's operating under this, like, super exaggerated, super intense acting style that actually seems like it might be better off in the silent era. Like, yeah. You know, I, when I, you weren't saying anything, that's... That that's you know you're communicating something that makes sense, but if you're actually speaking, it's way overkill. It's like Chris Absolutely. Claremont describing everything as it's going on while Jim Lee's also drawing it. Mm. I mean, I, th- I I I have at least figured out that that's why I have such difficulty um, getting with certain films from that era. There, there was a point at which acting suddenly became about a much more naturalistic portrayal and not doing things so over the top that the camera could see you, um, and and that's kind of the point at which I start to see a lot more films that I can really appreciate. Uh, there are some earlier yeah, ones. Yeah, it happened. But like, yeah, Billy Wilder was pretty good at getting some yeah. good, good performances. James so. Dean, oddly enough. 
East of Eden, very good. Um, but Marlon uh, Brando, I mean, I know he's kind of over the top of it sometimes, but he had kind of a sort of a, a, a mumbling, quiet, intense, sort of theatrical style. Yeah, yeah. I, if if two people are talking, I want to see them talking, not declaiming at each other with wild, over the top gestures. <laughs> Um, this doesn't. The other thing is, this doesn't feel like an apes film at all, really. If you look at the core plot of it, it's actually entirely revolving around this astronaut finds a bunch of psychics with a crazy bomb. The ape stuff is pasted in because that stuff is just a retread of the first film. Yeah. So this really should just have been a shitty, forgotten B movie that no one remembers. Indeed, but if you combine just as it, shit as the Omega Man. If you combine it with the first one, um, one of the things that. Again, this is thinking about it a little bit harder than it probably deserves. But the way they treat the very few females that they have in this film, pretty much all of them are the sole female representative of their society or their their community. So you've got the female astronaut um, who first lands with them, dead. Um, Then you've got um, Nova, the sole female who is considered worthy of interaction from the uh, primitive humans, uh, who dead, because she gets shot in the back. Her death is so quick and unceremonious considering how long she's been in this she's literally just been allowed to speak her first word and then she gets shot in the back what is the point of that she does nothing in this whole two films and then she gets shot in the back and then there's the she gets strangled twice almost drowned well there you go then she's there to show that they can control the men well, she, she's there to, to, for so someone can die so that Charlton Heston can be like fuck this whole planet Oh, so she's motivation. Oh, well, that's even better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the uh, the sole female member of the psychic humans who poisons herself in a bathtub for no apparent reason other than that she doesn't want to get blown up by the bomb. Zira is the sole arbiter of feminine intelligence. And she's Absolutely. a fucking hippie. And But you are with her throughout the whole of the first film. You are totally with Zero. Well, actually, you pointed out that she and uh, Cornelius, not played in this one by uh, Roddy McDowell, um, suddenly come on like Daily Mail readers, going, yeah, oh, it's this like country was pretty good. And then all the gorillas started moving in, if you yeah, know what I like mean. it's they've suddenly aged 40 years, and they've turned into this old All of those African who... gorillas with their, you know, brute force and strength. Mm-hmm, yeah, if you know what um, I mean. Uh, Cornelius suddenly smokes a pipe for no apparent reason. <laughs> and Zira changes the, the subject of conversation halfway through to start asking him whether he likes chocolate cake. I mean, for goodness sake. This is a woman who in the first one was a psychologist and a scientist. Yeah. And now all of a sudden she's got all domestic. So, yeah, it plummets. And it's not just us who thinks this. The first one got an 89% freshness rating on the one tomatoes. This one got, like, 41%. So, suddenly, more than half the people who liked it before are like, ugh, this is rubbish. On the upside, it's about to get a whole lot better. I now know, in retrospect, that these five films exist in their own separate timeline to the circus movies, with the Burton reimagining occupying a third pocket universe. I feel like we haven't done many aspects of this first film at least justice. The spaceship flight, rocket crash, existential malaise, action, escapes, chases, captures and philosophical musings are all noteworthy in the original Planet of the Apes for being good for their time. But by today's standards, with the above being in pretty much every sci-fi movie now, many of them exceptionally handled and memorable, 
All of these in the original apes seem like the earliest, most basic Lego kits in comparison to today's complex masterpieces in bricks. In fact, the Lego movie may be this generation's Planet of the Apes. The performances and delivery are by turns rigid and spasmodic. I know now that Kim Hunter and Roddy McDowell didn't come into their own until films 3 and 4 under different direction. Taylor in particular, as we've said too often, is an awful character, not least because he hasn't the wit to communicate non-verbally. Robbed of speech, you or I could easily mime to a sympathetic captor simple movements to indicate intelligence and indeed loss of vocal abilities. The hands together sign for please. Eye movements up, down to indicate thinking rather than just staring angrily. Supplication but with reservation and conveyed quid pro quo, everything Caesar was capable of in either McDowell or Circus incarnation. And all, of course, because the plot hinged on the apes being unaware of Taylor's intelligence for far too much of the story. For its time is something a lot of other critics fall back on, but not me. I always like to judge things as they are today, and as it is today... Planet of the Apes will not grab new viewers in the manner that Rise will. It will retain its long-term fans and it has far more than earned its place in history. What really counts is its legacy rather than how the film plays out now. In effect, imagine an early Star Trek episode with a Twilight Zone ending and no humour and you're there. Ancestor of all apes though. I am so glad it existed so that we can continue the story in Rise, Dawn, and probably Breakfast of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, uh, one last thing. While I have been very liberal with the monkey references, I am fully aware that the four extant genera of great apes, which of course have no tails and are far more intelligent, include only the chimpanzee, the gorilla, the orangutan, and the human. Coming up next. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. This is Zira. Her loving husband Cornelius and little Milo. The most dangerous to man is little Milo. Why? The time is 1973. The place is right here on Earth. How did they get here? What is their reception? Welcome, gentlemen, to the United States. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Their adventures are completely fresh, completely new, astonishingly different from what you experienced in Planet of the Apes and beneath the Planet of the Apes. At first, feared and imprisoned. We'll take the female first. Well, she seems to be pretty smart. All right. We'll go for the banana. Well, why doesn't she take it? Because I loathe bananas. I don't believe it. Sarah, are you mad? Until we know who our friends are and who our enemies... And how in the name of God are we to know that unless we communicate? We can speak, so I spoke. The president convenes a special board of inquiry. Have you a name? Zira. Does the other one talk? Only when she lets me. (laughs) Embraced by our civilization, the nation gives them a hero's welcome. Address, please. To Zoom. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's sort of uh, like grape juice plus. How is that? Very well.
slipped. It's certainly the most incredible story this reporter has ever covered. And you share the impact of every incredible moment. Must have been the shock. Shock my foot. I'm pregnant. The president's chief advisor wants them murdered, or else the human race cannot survive. The escape. The birth of an infant who could threaten man's very existence. You're the second human I've kissed. You are the first. The relentless chase. The stunning climax. Why was Washington thrown into a turmoil by this one baby? Stop him! Escape from the planet of the apes. Deep discussion and entertaining analysis of movies, games, and media culture. Welcome to the Digital Drift. Okay, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, made in 1971. It's set in 1974. We're back in time, folks. Although when originally released, it was forward in time. You're not thinking fourth dimensionally! And the ship, originally piloted by Taylor, lands off the coast of California. It is brought in by the military, and three humanoid apes in spacesuits step out. They are Cornelius, Zira and an ape in a red shirt from engineering named Milo. Interned in a zoo, despite changing out of their spacesuits and into robes, they are believed to be spacefaring monkeys from Earth, possibly Russian cosmonauts. Zira slowly begins to hint at their intelligence, eventually speaking to a pair of human doctors. Milo is killed by a nearby gorilla, and the apes are revealed to the world in a press conference. Turns out that they witnessed the end of the Earth as they escaped into space and a convenient time hole, which sent them back 2,000 years. The apes become celebrities and appear on various broadcasts. Cornelius reveals that an imminent viral outbreak will leave household dogs and cats extinct and humans will start taking simian pets in greater numbers. Within two centuries, the monkeys will have become intelligent enough through greater responsibilities to rise up and say, No! to their captors, hence the eventual overthrow of the human race. Lewis, the psychiatrist who first made contact with them, takes their story to the President of the United States, and various government groups hold various meetings and commissions to discuss what's to be done with the apes and their cataclysmic future they speak of. It is decided that Zira's recently announced pregnancy is to be terminated and that they are to be neutered to prevent intelligent offspring forming the basis of dominant ape kind. Cornelius and Zira escape and hole up in a circus run by a sympathetic Ricardo Monteblan. There, among the other chimps, Zira gives birth to a new baby chimp that they name Milo. Escaping into the L.A. docks with a pistol given to them by Lewis, Zira and Cornelius are tracked by a government agent intent on wiping them off the planet, lest it become ruled by apes. All three simians are killed, as is the agent, and we close on the circus they just fled, complete with a cunningly switched baby Milo calling out for his mama. 
Okay, so first off, this one took us by surprise because, as we just said, we had just watched the entire Earth get destroyed. It's hard to have a sequel from that. It is, yes. But they managed it. Yeah, and um, we, like I said, we've never seen any of these films, and so we didn't ex- know what to expect. So it was uh, it was carefully placing bets as to who was going to come out of the pod, and I was just, thank God it wasn't Charlton Heston. Uh, you got some background on how this was put together. I do, yes. So despite Beneath the Planet of the Apes ending in a way that prevented the series from moving on, 20th Century Fox... <laughs> Not just the series, but the Earth. <laughs> well, indeed, yes. Uh, 20th Century Fox... 20th Century Fox, you'll notice, who would have been <laughs> quite disgruntled about the idea of the uh, 30th century resulting in their complete obl- obliteration. <laughs> There'll be no Fox! Yay! Uh, anyway, <laughs> so 20th Century Fox still wanted a sequel. Technically Ronnie... 39th Century Fox. No, uh, four... uh, 40th, 40th century. century Fox. 20th Century Fox still wanted a sequel. Yes, I know! I'm trying to pull my face straight. Give me a moment. <laughs> uh, it's harder the ape makeup, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. 20th Century Fox still wanted a sequel. Roddy McDowell in the franchise documentary. No change there! Sorry. 20th Century Fox still wanted a sequel. No, I'm not doing that bit again. I'm doing it again. Roddy McDowell in the franchise documentary. Hey! Hey, you said you weren't doing it again. What? No, no, no. I just meant I'm not doing 20th Century Fox still wanted a sequel again. Just did it again. (laughs) I'll take one of them. Will you stop? Okay. Roddy McDowell in the franchise documentary Behind the Planet of the Apes stated that Arthur P. Jacobs sent Beneath's screenwriter Paul Den a telegram concerning the sequel that read, Apes exist, sequel required. And Den decided to create an out from the destructive ending of Beneath by having Cornelius and Zira going back in time with a Leonardo da Vinci-like ape after fixing Taylor's spaceship before the Earth was destroyed. Uh, he's not very really Da Vinci-like. He's he's kind not of really, like, uh, no. third technician-like, frankly. Yeah. Den also consulted Pierre Boulle, writer of the Planet of the Apes novel, to imbue his script with the same satirical elements. The screenplay, originally titled Secret of the Planet of the Apes, accommodated the smaller budget by having fewer people in ape makeup and attracted director Don Taylor for its light-hearted humour and focusing on the chimpanzee couple. Den also added the latter part of the film, which involved the chase for Zira, Cornelius and their son, references to the racial conflicts and a few religious overtones to the story of Jesus. A line of dialogue even has the president comparing the plan to kill an unborn child to the massacre of the innocents. While Kim Hunter had to be convinced by the studio to make Beneath, she liked the script for Escape from the Planet of the Apes and accepted work on it, though Hunter also stated that she was very glad she was killed off and that Zira was not required anymore after that film. Hunter stated that despite the friendly atmosphere on the set, she and Roddy McDowell felt a sense of isolation for being the only people dressed as chimpanzees. Production was rushed due to the low budget, and the film was made in only six weeks. You can see why that isolation might actually prove quite useful to an actor, though, because you use it. So, um, you commented while we were watching this that this was your favourite so far? Yes, very definitely. Um, it absolutely whips the pants off Beneath, uh, which was terrible. Beneath is one of the worst films I've seen in a long, long time. Awful, isn't it? So bad. Takes everything that sucked about the first one and and somehow manages to turn all of that into an even worse film and adds in a load of other crap which you didn't need. 
Yeah, it's like um, that bit in... Is it Logan's Run where they end up in a cave with some... Weird robot? Yes. Welcome, humans. Fish, plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. Overwhelming, am I not? Are you too startled? Am I too removed from your ken? I'm more than machine or man. More than a fusion of the two. Don't you agree? Fish and plankton and sea greens and protein from the sea. I'm ready. And you're ready. It's my job to freeze you. Protein, plankton, grass from the sea. <laughs> and you just you just confused dude Logan's is run is a masterpiece compared beneath with Beneath the, the, the Planet of the Apes yes you may be right yeah. um, but I personally think that this is actually better than the first one as well whoa um, I, I agree and most uh, historians will go no it's not but- I'm sure they will um, but as I said when we were talking about Beneath, the 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 standard of acting, there is a seismic shift between. Well, basically, it's once we've got rid of Charlton Heston, <laughs> and that guy who was emulating Charlton Heston. Yeah, exactly. The, if you if you watch the acting like in this, I mean, there is there is still. It's still got all the hallmarks. Well, of it's seventies. It's not like it's early, not like yeah, high it's quality. Early seventies. Um, the music is awful. The music in uh, all of them is awful. It's like more timpani, more tim- just banging away. It's like bring in the noise, bring in the funk. Absolutely. Um, so it's no worse than the earlier ones. Um, but the the performances are actually really really good. And Kim Hunter is it basically the only good thing as far as I'm concerned about the first two. So the fact that she was brought in and made the complete focus of the film, um, I, I really liked that. I thought that was great. They got Roddy McDowell back. Good. He was also very good. It, it seemed like they got more of a sense of focus about what story they wanted to tell, which was really quite significant for me because the, the first two seemed to be lacking that. If they were trying to make social commentary of any kind, the brushstrokes were so broad I couldn't see them, mm. which was difficult for me to then um, sort of work out how that fit into whether I even – could understand it or not, never mind whether or not I liked it. Whereas this, it, it's, it's not so much that it's very simple and they're nailing their colours to the mast about who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. It's not that simplistic and it's good that it's not that simplistic. However, it's pretty clear from the word go where your sympathies are intended to lie mm. that the fact remains that these apes are intelligent and it is, um, depressing that the humans singularly fail to realize that at first um but that gradually they come round to realizing or or at least you think that they're coming round to realizing that they are intelligent that they are social that they you know are, are basically just humans with more hair um and that they should be treated as such but the i mean one of the parallels that that occurred to me about them turning up on this planet and immediately being immediately being dumped in this zoo cage um that they were treating them like refugees 
you know, held in detention centres, subjected to inhumane treatment. They end up, um, they have to get dressed in front of um, soldiers. And there's a there's a point where it's quite subtle, but Zira seems to be sort of trying to cover herself so that they can't see her getting dressed. Um, The way they behave towards her when they find out that she's pregnant is there's a really it's not so much that they they don't seem to get the seriousness of it but they there seemed less weight than i would have expected um in the scene in which they basically talk about forced abortion and sterilization um and it's almost like there is still a sense that well they're animals so it, it's actually not that big a deal um, I think but, that that scene was supposed to be about we're dealing with such big things and so many huge issues every single day. Mm. Uh, we can't get too hung up on the human rights or indeed ape rights for just two people. There's too much at stake here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but you do it's between also, a president and a, a psychiatrist. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 all the, all the decisions are made at a very high level. But it it does seem. Um, I mean, you made the comparison with um, uh, with Terminator, but it does seem that the the fact that they are making this decision in order to prevent a future which has already happened, even if they succeed you can assume that this future will come about one way or the other unless they plan on exterminating every single high-level primate in the world. Not necessarily. They don't know how time travel works. As far as they're concerned, if they change the future, if they change the present, they could skew into an alternate 3,978. True. But if that's the case, wouldn't it make more sense as a human with feelings and understanding that you're dealing with other beings which also have feelings to err on the side of caution and not force them to I am not for a moment suggesting that enforced abortion and sterilization was the right thing to do. I was kind of refreshed by how seriously the uh, premise was taken on board by uh, the humans that you know within a few moments of uh, finding out that they were talking apes from the future there they were discussing it in i suppose it's like a really early world war z kind of you know in the same way that travis d'ambrosia talks about how it was like a dam burst uh, and they were talking discussing walking corpses as though such an absurd thing could actually be a major factor in the development of a nation yeah but yes, I, I mean the whole um, assimilation that the uh, the people who you're supposed to like and sympathise with. I mean the the, uh, the circus owner particularly, mm. played by Ricardo Monteblanc <laughs> in that wonderful way he manages only without the venom of Khan. Absolutely, um, but the, the fact that people who actually talk to them and interact with um, with Cornelius and Zira just grasp so quickly that they are they're on your level they they treat them like i mean to to begin with there are a lot of people who are treating zira like an academic and she (laughs) there's this brilliant scene where she seems to basically kick start the women's movement they take her to speak at um uh, a women's club in san francisco and she's like you know we, we yes we can do all these things with our hands but we can do things with our heads too and we need to make sure that men know this and and let us think and let us do things that we want to do and it's like yeah it seemed like we need more of that it seemed like there was a more of a balanced uh hand in the actual a far more this is a much more liberal movie than the first two 
the first two uh, actually seem to be pretty fucking right wing. But the, it's, this one's much more talky, much more discursive, and far deeper concepts are explored in a way that's they, they don't even like dumb it down for the audiences. They're just like, no, you know, if, if you if you watch seventies political thrillers, you'll get this. And it, Nixon was uh, in the White House at the time, so it's kind of like uh, the, the president is actually refreshingly not. A wicked, evil man, just desperate to for control at any cost. He's actually he's trying to. Um, uh, he doesn't want them killed. He wants to, this to to be resolved without butchery. So far in the in the series, human representation has been pathetic. You've got these shambling subhumans, and then when they get out of their spacecraft, there's these primitive humans walking around as well, taking fruit off the trees. The only humans we've had so far have been incredibly blunt instruments, so it's it's great to see scientists actually try to take on board this future and, and ruminate on it. Now, the issue, unfortunately, comes down to the fact that the whole destruction of the Earth is predicated by a bomb designed to destroy everything, which is so stupid, you can't work it into an intelligent film. They don't even really mention the bomb. It's more about well, what happens with all these apes. It would make sense if the bomb was designed specifically to kill all biological life on Earth. The idea being that you retreat into a bunker with all the other humans that you can gather with you so that all the apes will die. If there was some more thought put into it. But it was one of those films where they're just like, oh, it's a, a, a bomb that will destroy the atmosphere and the, the fire will go all the way around the Earth. The Solomonite. Like, it's that level of unthinking. Um, so, I mean, just off the top of my head, I came up with a better idea in terms of what a weapon could be designed for. And despite its terrible ferocity, there was some plan behind it. But unfortunately, that's kind of, they had to leave that out of the movie because it's so stupid. It is rather, yes. And it's, as you say, it's not really referred to. They, they talk, well, they talk about the destruction of the Earth. Well, they, they, but thing, in very abstract don't, terms. They don't actually know why the Earth was destroyed. They don't know about the bomb. No. The apes going to find the humans didn't know what they were going to find. And then when they found it, it was a giant bomb. And the bomb went off and killed everyone on the planet. So the, these apes, unfortunately, coming back in time, have very little of usable information. But I suppose they could just say, look, some sort of weapon was set off. We know we don't have access to that, so it's possible it was a relic from the past. It might be an idea to put out a memo to say, don't create any doomsday devices. That, to me, would have been a more sensible way of trying to prevent this future than well, the killing focusing the intelligent on killing apes. Small yeah. apes, yeah. Absolutely. One thing, one touch I really liked, actually, and it's quite a small thing, but one of my beefs with the first two is that none of the uh, supposed primitive humans made any attempts at communication. Um, there were no gestures. There was no sign language. There was no, no verbalization of any kind from anybody. Um, and if they were kind of carrying on with that idea, you would expect any regular apes that turned up in this to be the same but in the zoo there is a gorilla who is clearly very frustrated at his captivity um, and he lashes out by grabbing hold of, of Milo as in the scientist who comes back with uh, Leonardo da Vinci Sierra, um, and killing him and then at the end um, in the, the baby swap scenario you have um, the mother of 
Salome, who's the the baby that um, Zira takes with her, uh, who is called Heloise, and um, Zira leaves baby Milo with Heloise to care for. Um, and there's a, a point where she goes into the cage to, to allegedly say goodbye to Heloise, and they are communicating. They are quite clearly communicating. Um, there's there's no verbalization or anything like that, but there's this lovely moment where Heloise is kind of sort of tapping Salome's head with her chin and gesturing towards Zira as if to say, take her. Um, and there's, there's a whole conversation that goes on between them that is, is very apparent. Even if the, the, uh, essential content of it is not clear that there is an asking for, a um, for help and an offering of a solution between two mothers who need to find a way forward out of this. And it's, it's gorgeous. It's lovely. Really, really well done. Especially considering that Heloise was basically a woman in a chimp suit. Well, so technically was Zira. Yeah, I know, but the makeup on the actual apes was not nearly as good as the makeup on um, uh, Cornelius and Zira. In fact, if you look at the um, the big gorilla at the beginning... It's, it's like that party ape at the uh, end of Trading Places. Yes, yes. It's all, the fur is all, it's fur, not hair, and it's all matted and it looks bad. <laughs> that was the one on James Belushi. What's up, guys? We're going to be dressed as monkeys now. What... So, um, you'd, you'd rate this as, as your favourite. Do you think it's going to be this one's going to be topped by either of the uh, next two? I doubt it very much. This one actually, th- right? This is the first one that's actually elicited an emotional response from me. Yeah, you cry, which is the I first one since the characters. Uh, Rise. Um, and yeah, I, I cried at the end, and I was actually involved in the narrative of the story rather than simply getting hung up on the fact that um, that this piece of scenery looked like it was made of cardboard and was about to fall over and that Charlton Heston was pissing me off royally and um, other things that had absolutely nothing to do with the content of the film and everything to do with the production of the film I do like that Tom Cruise comparison it really does apply many mm. to, to many of Charlton Heston's productions indeed he must always be seen to be cool and okay. manly and very manly Look who's got a scorching case of the not gays. It's Charlton Heston and Tom Cruise. Okay, um, so that's that, that will do it for Escape from the Planet of the Apes.
the monkey bunny monkey little red monkey acting so fidgety look at the monkey bunny monkey little red monkey cute as can be where is his mama papa sister brother cousin rest of the family little red monkey on his own some very lonesome monkey is he listen carefully dick and jimmy cuz here is a job for you what is it if you get him into the zoo the zoo he do all of his tricks for you joy why not drop him a line or two what for inviting him to the zoo for if we do then what he'll be a happy snappy monkey little red monkey acting so merrily we hope you like this little red monkey very lonesome monkey is he now the biggest the newest the most exciting of all the planet of the apes pictures climaxed by the spectacular revolt of the apes the most awesome the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction first pampered as pets then abused as servants now oppressed as slaves Of all security forces, police, militia, and reserve defense units. See that every entrance into the city is cordoned off immediately. Yes, sir. Our control methods will include the use of tear gas and sedation dunks. There will be but one control method. Shoot to kill. Ready? the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. There is fire, there is smoke. And in that smoke, from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! Okay, so conquest of the planet of the apes. In the far-off year of 1991, 17 years after Zira and Cornelius were killed, their son, Milo, now renamed Caesar, is separated from Ricardo Monteblan, who has been sheltering him all these years. It is a grim 1984-style future where developed apes are already serving mankind as an enormous contingent of simian slaves. Apes are interned and treated badly, trained to be monkey butlers and kept docile. It is into this cruel system that Caesar is absorbed, masquerading as just another ape. Monteblan is interrogated and in his escape attempt falls to his death, exposing Caesar's true heritage, which the US government officials had long suspected. The hunt is on for this hidden, superintelligent chimp. And they are right to fear him. Caesar orchestrates a very subtle, far-reaching plan for ape revolution. He is assisted by a sympathetic, high-ranking human named MacDonald, whom it is worth noting is black and has no doubt spotted the uncomfortable parallels with mankind's history of slavery. MacDonald frees a captive Caesar from torture and the apes rise up and escape their bonds, bringing with them the tools of revolution that Caesar has had them gather. 
there is a bloody conflict with the apes obtaining rifles. Caesar is confronted by Breck, the government agent who has been hounding and torturing him. Breck states that the ape that man came from resides in his heart and must be shackled. To Breck, the ape represents the dark animal side of man. Caesar gives two conflicting speeches in victory before a baying crowd of simians, one which speaks of savage vengeance upon their human aggressors and the subsequent subjugation of mankind. The other calls for peace and mercy, and it is his ultimate conclusion, though he is now certain that the planet of the apes has risen. So for folks who haven't seen this film before, and it's sounding rather familiar, this is effectively an early prototype version of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, or Rise of the Planet of the Apes shares thematic similarities while not actively being a straightforward remake. It's also, so far, I believe our favourite. Personally, I think I still prefer Escape. Really? Yes. But it's very close. And I actually would prefer to take them as a pair. Yeah, they do go very well together. This one most definitely has an agenda... Uh, it's got serious political drive behind it. They're trying to tell a story, and it's doing what sci-fi should, which is to make you think and examine existing systems and previous systems using a metaphorical scenario. J. Lee Thompson, who had maintained an interest in the franchise ever since producer Arthur P. Jacobs invited him for the original Planet of the Apes, was hired to direct Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Thompson staged every scene with attention to detail, such as highlighting the conflicts with colour. The humans wear black and other muted colours, while the apes' suits are quite colourful. Don Murray suggested to Thompson his wardrobe with a black turtleneck sweater and rehearsed his scenes after translating his dialogue into German to get this kind of severe feeling of the Nazis. Screenwriter Paul Den wrote the film incorporating references to the racial conflicts in North America during the early 1970s, which Part, Thompson... You pointed out Malcolm X during the, uh, the, the Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speech, uh, the, the parallels at the end. That was going on at the time. Yeah, and the um, some of the riot scenes, it did occur to me that they seemed to have been shot to deliberately make them look like the Watts riots. Yeah. Which Thompson further highlighted by shooting some scenes in a manner similar to a news broadcast. Malcolm X was killed seven years before this, but it was most definitely still in the public conscious. Yeah. The primary location was Century City, Los Angeles, that had previously been part of the 20th Century Fox backlot and translated well the bleak future with monochromatic buildings in a sterile, ultra-modern style. In addition, TV producer Irwin Allen contributed props and clothes to the film. He let the makers of Conquest borrow his Seaview jumpsuits from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, brown clothes and computers and cabinets for ape management that were used first on the time tunnel, and other sets and props from other Allen productions. Oh, and one other thing, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 68, so only four years before this. So, like I said, there is a duality to Caesar. He's both Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher. The original cut of Conquest ended with the brutal killing of Governor Breck, with an implicit non-violent message implying that the circle of hatred would never end. After a preview screening in Phoenix on June 1st, 1972, the impact of the graphic content caused the producers to rework the film, even though they did not have the budget to do so. 
Roddy McDowell recorded a compliment to Caesar's final speech, which was portrayed through editing tricks, Caesar being mostly shown through close-ups of his eyes. The gorillas hitting Breck with his rifles played backwards to imply they were giving up and assured a lower rating. See, I felt that was that was going to happen, and obviously that's what they were leading up to, so that was extremely well edited. Mm. The film's Blu-ray version adds an unrated version, restoring the original ending and many other graphic scenes. Filmed in Depresso Vision, with the same message as uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which just seems to be despairing old men going, oh, it's all gone to shit. Conquest is the only apes film without a pre-title sequence. The film's script and novelisation describes a nighttime pre-title scene where police on night patrol shoot an escaping ape and discover that his body is covered with welts and bruises as evidence of severe abuse. Screenplay writer Paul Den, who wrote and co-wrote the sequels, said in interviews with Cinefantastic, quoted in the Planet of the Apes Chronicles by Paul Woods, that the story he was writing had a circular theme. The whole thing has become a very logical development in the form of a circle. I have a complete chronology of the time circle mapped out, and when I start a new script, I check every supposition I make against the chart to see if it is correct to use it. While I was out there in California, Arthur Jacobs said he thought this would be the last, so I fitted it together so that it fitted in with the beginning of Apes 1, so that the wheel had come full circle, and one could stop there quite happily, I think. That was January 72, before they did another one. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Just, uh, well, there are, you would have gathered, overt themes of slavery and cycles, which is, again, like, like I said, there's a political agenda to this, which, which was very engaging for me. It, it became more of a sci-fi than, uh, um, it became more of a, a sci-fi with a message to it. Like the first apes, I'm not entirely sure what the message was supposed to be. The second one had no message at all. It was it was just gibberish. It was despairing and lamenting, and they threw so much shit at a wall just to see if any of it would stick. Third one seemed to be much more about, as you say, it, it works well with this in terms of the idea that humanity is present in both humans and apes, and savagery is present in both humans and apes. And I think what we call humanity isn't necessarily exclusive to humans. I think that you, you could kind of interpret the idea of... Um uh, sort of the, the great power with great power comes great responsibility intelligence is a great power and if you have intelligence to a degree you have a responsibility to use that in a humane way so the apes by demonstrating that they do have intelligence and moving towards being able to exercise that intelligence and have uh, agency over themselves and, and to have power, it's almost like Caesar's coming to the conclusion that they have to use that power wisely. Or they have to use it not wisely, that's the wrong word. Um, mercifully. There's a lot of comments on uh, revolution as well, the uh, the cycle of oppression followed by revolution. And when it comes down to it, if you are the victor of that conflict, whichever side you're on, the key moments of the conflict are the few seconds after you've won. How do you then react as the victor to the fallen? If you react with wrath, the cycle will continue because you're then giving the oppressed more reason to keep rising up. 
or the the previous oppressors that you've now overthrown. You're giving them a reason to rise back. Yeah. But if you you react with mercy, then maybe an accord can be reached. Yeah. Again, I mean, uh, this is just this is speaking our X Men language. Absolutely. If there is meaning to the first two, um, and that's a big if, then I, I suppose you could read elements of uh, fear of the atomic bomb into that and fear of um, uh, mankind's growing... Fear of the atomic bomb isn't meaning, it's subtext. No, 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 I know, I know, but but sort of the... And it existed in the most rudimentary of B-movies. That's yes. not a, that's not an achievement. No, no, I'm not saying it is. I'm yeah. just saying that, that we didn't necessarily perceive there being anything of, of great significance to us there because that's not something that we recognize as being part of our current situation and, and society. But, um, I think not, it's more complex. Not necessarily specifically the atomic bomb and the and atomic power, but certainly the prospect of, um, mankind's growing scientific ability flourishing into the ability to destroy themselves and to um, uh, uh, to elevate other forms of life to the point where they are going to take over. I mean, you, you could argue that put that in modern parlance and it's something like um, artificial fear of artificial intelligence taking yeah, over. Yeah. There's certainly um, a, a seed of that in uh, Rise because the the source of the ape, of the apes increased intelligence is a human invention. Um, it's something that that goes through the filter of genetics, but Caesar wouldn't exist uh, had mankind uh, specifically will. Caesar not would meddled. not exist in the state he is. Exactly, yeah. That something else had to happen in order to engender that. Looking at them in terms of their overarching themes, I mean, in the escape and conquest, I knew nothing about them going in. If I had, I probably would have been able to guess that I would have liked them most because of this very solid theme of uh, Kyriarchy overthrow. Um, and Kyriarchy is a term that I never really thought I would get the chance to use in this podcast. But it's, it, yeah. it's basically um, it's an expansion of uh, the term patriarchy. It was coined by a German feminist called Elizabeth Schussler Fiorenza. Um, and it basically, it, it's, it literally means rule by a lord. And it describes social systems where the institutions and the setups that are being implemented are all based on domination and oppression and submission. So basically there is a, uh, a group which is in power and in order for that to maintain, there by necessity have to be groups which are submissive to them. Um, but it goes beyond the idea of simply men in charge, which is what patriarchy kind of refers to. Um, so you can use it in terms of looking at uh, colonialism, the idea that if white people are in charge, then people of colour have to be submissive to them. If men are in charge, then women have to be submissive to them. If uh, heterosexuality is the dominant ideology, then anybody who is not of that sexuality is by their very nature uh, required to be submissive to that um, so that the system can continue and any kind of uh, revolution that wants to change the status quo 
needs to recognise all of the intersecting forms of power that are currently in place before it can start pulling the bricks out from underneath them and, and causing them to topple over. Um, so, as you say, the, the very obvious parallel between um, the way the apes are being treated and the sort of civil rights overthrowing uh, previous slavery situation it, and it's it's not something that they they do subtly. It is referred to several times, um, but visually as well as verbally. So you've got things like in the ape management building, where all the apes, as they as they are uh, brought in from the jungles that they've been captured from, they're brought to this kind of retraining center where they condition them with literal electric shocks and flamethrowers and, and beatings in order to be able to do the, the jobs that they're going to that are going to be expected of them a lot of the security guards there are black and they, there almost seems to be this um it's it's tricky to know exactly what they were trying to intimate but my inference from it um was sort of a suggestion of if you were previously the most oppressed person on this ladder and you're now being allowed to move up a rung or two, look down because it'll be happening because somebody else is now beneath you. And frankly, for something of that political depth to be in a cheesy early 70s sci-fi movie. It it wasn't even two million. That was. I found that quite impressive. Yeah, it. it uh, they sold a sense of scale, and uh, this happening in more places than just one. Mm, absolutely, and th- they do refer to that later on. Um, Caesar talks about apes on the five continents seeing what they've done and, and imitating their actions, which again, something not I mean, addressed in Rats, <laughs> I might add. No, but there is that sort of that suggestion that all people have ever believed that these apes can do is mimic and imitate. And that's why these little revolutions, however small they are to start with, are such a source of fear because they will be imitated. And that's, again, the same with any system where uh, people are being oppressed and held down, is that one, once one person stands up, others will too. did miss Kim Hunter in this one she's uh, uh, she's sadly missed from the series but Roddy McDowell really stepped up to the plate to, oh to he was the... astounding in this I think we were comparing him to an early circus he uh, he's very expressive through the mask and he's playing a new character effectively the son of Cornelius and uh, let's face it he's playing Caesar unlike circuses Caesar he can fully talk and was able to literally verbalise quite elegantly some very, very similar feelings to the ones that uh, modern-day Caesar would have gone through during the uprising in uh, Rise. Although he starts... Um, or, well, actually, no, you, you can see the parallel between them. He starts off quite um, naive because he doesn't know about the world. Yeah. And Caesar in Rise starts very young and you see him grow up and you see him learn about the hardship and the, the difficulties that he's going to face and, and eventually come into the conclusion of how he can overcome this. Um, but one thing I thought was 
possibly a factor, um, although again, I could be reading more into this than there was, um, is back in the day, there was a certain perception of um, various types of, of ape. And one thing that seems to have run through these uh, Planet of the Apes films is that they perceive chimps as being quite playful and um, uh, gentle and, and chips uh, can be really vicious and, and will, yeah, they, they will eat your skin given the chance well <laughs> i don't know that i'd go that far but but now that more study of chimps has been done they it's it's known that they are actually much more prone to um aggression particularly in defense of their territory and in defense of their um uh, their mates and their families and i wondered whether that had influenced the changes in uh, caesar's nature I think what's most impressive about McDowell's performance for me, though, was that um, it, it was the scene where um, he finds out that Armando is dead, basically in a scene where he's being interrogated. It's not quite clear whether he throws himself out of a window or he accidentally falls out of a window in, in a struggle. And when Caesar hears about this, he's in a position where um, he's pretending to be a, a primitive chimp, so he can't speak to anybody he can't verbalize his grief um he can't he's, he's very limited in terms of what he can do to even indicate that he's understood what's been said so it's all done through his eyes and through the he he makes very small movements with his mouth and he gets this amazing feeling of uh, of a very powerful grief this is you know this is the only father he ever really knew yeah. and and now as well the other thing is he has nowhere to go he's been hiding amongst the other chimps in the hope that armando was going to come and and find him again and now that hope is gone and you see all that go through him in the space of this one scene and it's so incredible and then you realize he's doing this through a rubber mask paralleled with Circus's performance when Will first leaves him at the enclosure and he's pressing himself against the window and going through a whole range of emotions. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've been reading Paul Den's uh, back catalogue. He wrote Goldfinger, or the, uh, the, the screenplay of it, as well as The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. So the guy's got talent, despite the fact that he also wrote Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He didn't write the original, or he didn't uh, adapt the original. Uh, Like I said, that went through various rewrites. I think they kind of... He appears to have been godfathering the projects as it moved forwards. So he's like the... Even though he's not necessarily in the producer role, he's the Kevin Feige of um, this particular universe pushing forwards. Up until this fifth and final one. Because he wrote uh, all four of the sequels. It feels like the second was rushed and very much meddled with by studios. Mm. Like they were just like, well, look, we've got to, we've got to surprise people. So put in something that really shouldn't be there at all. We've got to have a shock ending. So put that in there. And it just, they crowbarred that in. I could be wrong, but that sort of, um, botched filmmaking was mostly covered up in those days. Ah, Polly should be. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but yeah, it's it's clawed its way back with uh, with two uh, very politically driven and uh, socially driven uh, films, which surprised me because frankly I thought uh, that uh, one was going to be the absolute pinnacle, and it's not the case at all. I'm sure there are going to be people out there who are like, "Oh, how dare you say one isn't the best of all of them, and in fact the best film ever made." One of the failings of this one uh, would possibly be that the uh, 
instance of what would be the word sympathetic humanity is so small, and because it was such a a, a focused um, cross section of the ruling class, it made most of the human race seem like total bastards. It does a bit, yeah. And I mean, you've got thus deserving of this uprising. But I mean, in a way, you kind of you kind of have to do that because if you set up a society in which slavery exists, yeah. it's really difficult to then set up people who are effectively supporting and shoring up that system of slavery. Yeah. But they're not really that bad once you get to know them. But they're still agreeing with, uh, or at the very least, not actively objecting to the enslaving of other intelligent beings. I did love so, how utterly paranoid the ruling class uh, appeared when it was suggested for even a moment that the apes might actually, uh, you know, be, be deserving of freedom. It was like, well, you know, if you give them an inch, they'll all get out. It'll be anarchy. <laughs> uh, immediate parallels, uh, intentionally so, with the American South prior to, during the middle of, and immediately after the Civil War. You can't give these guys freedom. They'll kill us. We fucking deserve it. Mm. That's effectively what everybody was too chicken shit to say. Indeed. But I think possibly that's That's why... That's not saying everybody in the South right now, or that everybody in the South thought like that, but there was a prevailing sentiment. Yeah. If, If you've been in charge of a system that crushes, oppresses, and harms other people for centuries, then somewhere deep down you're going to know that when those people get out from under that thumb, they would be completely within their rights to turn around and smash you right back. Maybe not necessarily within their rights, but they would have every reason. You've given them the ammunition. Um, but I think that's possibly one reason why um, I found um, Escape a little bit more um, engaging in terms of the uh, the other human interactions, because there were more yeah, characters more mix, in that yeah. who were more even. I mean, you've got the actively sympathetic um, Lewis. Lewis and his wife. Um, the, Is this his wife or his partner? I think she's she's just his, his partner in the zoo. She didn't the speak much though. Zoo. Um, the but even like the president is pretty moderate and, yeah. and he's looking for a never a got more to meet the president of, of 1991. Did we? Yeah. It would have been um, George Bush. Ah! Oh my god, <laughs> the first George Bush. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it basically in in this well, 1991, uh, we we all know what to do. So the the apes called you a wimp. Wimp. (laughs) (laughs) So on to the final uh, one of this quintology. That wasn't a word, interestingly enough. They created quadrilogy for uh, Alien Resurrection, yet uh, Planet had already arisen. By the time you get get to five, it's just a series. Yeah. Why can't you just be honest and say franchise? Quadrilogy implies there was some measure of predetermined, well, this is going to be a story of four parts. Yeah, I really don't like the term franchise, though, because to me it says something... Just financial. Well, it suggests something very specific in terms of uh, this is an intellectual property that anybody can pick up and run with. So a franchise, to me, should really have different directors, Mm. uh, different writers, um, potentially different producers, although I think the money is probably always going to come from the same place, um, at least to some degree. And uh, there's usually at least an attempt to get the same actors back. But when you have something which is actively been put together 
by the same uh, director writing team, yeah. I personally wouldn't call that a franchise. If there was I would a be more inclined to call that a series. Yeah. yeah. So the Marvel Cinematic Universe, for example, most definitely needs another word than simply franchise because of Kevin Feige and the Marvel team who are running the damn thing. Yeah, because there is an overarching creative vision that's linking them all together. However, Spider-Man is a franchise made up of a trilogy and an ongoing series that may or may not just be nipped in the bud the moment that uh, the finances don't work out yeah it is now i think um the x-men series as well you could probably call a franchise yeah that's changing uh, all kinds of creative hands although arguably avi arad and brian singer have godfathered those two franchise movie series at various key points along the way hmm. okay food for thought let's move on to the next in the series we want guns now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, strange transformed men who live underground like moles, battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Murdered my son. We will smash the human, and then we will smash Caesar. I don't want to have to remember my husband. I want to love him now. But we who survive create a new race. In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest war in human history. Climaxing the epic series which made motion picture history comes the last, the most spectacular of all the ape adventures. Out of the forbidden city they roared to settle once and for all who had the right to rule the planet, ape or man. Okay, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, 1973. Uh, the year is 2670. There is a Lord of the Rings-style voiceover from John Huston, who played Gandalf in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit movies, and also did the narration for The Black Cauldron. Uh, it's priming us for the events of an ape legend. Suddenly we're back in 2001, and apes have subjugated man and are living in uneasy harmony, though mankind appears to be enslaved in some unspecified manner. In fact, the apes, despite it only being ten years after the last film, appear to be almost exactly as advanced as they will be 2,000 years from now. Military leaders like the aggressive guerrilla General Aldo are taught English alongside small children. The word no is banned, as it has connotations of their former enslavement. 
Caesar is married to an ape named Lisa with a son named Cornelius. He hears about tapes of his parents buried beneath a bombed and irradiated human city of unspecified name. He journeys there with the brother of MacDonald, the guy who helped him in the last movie, and an intellectual orangutan named Virgil, who keeps declaring hefty physics-based conundrums. Uh, they find some tapes but are chased away by... Irradiated humans, the apparent ancestors of the rubber-faced zealots with the world-destroying bomb two millennia from now. Caesar's wife Lisa attempts to appeal to her wise husband who seeks war with the aggressive humans. She reminds him of his desire for peace in the end of the last movie. Meanwhile, the guerrillas led by Aldo plot a revolt against their chimp and orangutan overlords. They are overheard by Caesar's son, Cornelius, whom Aldo injures to the point of death and then he dies in order to silence him. The humans led by a shit Brian Cox looking chap attack the entire ape population of about 22 with two jeeps, a truck, 17 soldiers and a modified howitzer. Aldo's forces seize guns from the armory and engage in, sorry, guerrilla warfare. A very, very unimpressive, twitchy, titchy battle takes place. The apes easily destroy the humans over 20 tedious and under-budgeted minutes. Caesar then learns it was Aldo who killed his son, breaking the one ape law that ape may not kill ape. In revenge, Caesar kills him. Then ruminates on what that means to no end. Then with little else to do, he declares a truce with the humans he was already at peace with, frees them from their unspecified bonds and pats himself on the back. 600 years later, we cut back to John Houston Ape, who is talking to a class of human and ape children, now apparently in harmony. The end. Uh, worst of the five. Oh, God, I don't think I ever... Uh, I, Sharon, mm-hmm. can I never watch this film again? By all means, my love. Please. I mean, I, I, you can watch Beneath the Planet of the Apes and laugh at how shit it is, but this one isn't even funny shit. And also, beneath, I, I pointed this one out earlier, Beneath the Planet of the Apes took... Um, the original premise of Planet of the Apes, and because they didn't know what to do with it, they sort of went, uh, let's sort of do it again. Only we don't really have Charlton Heston, so let's put like a replacement in. And then another twist, mutants and a bomb and destroy the world. It was just this, this sheer panic. And you can see that in the construction of it. This, it appears like they had to round off the series, but didn't know how. And... As opposed to films three and four, they didn't make it a think piece. They made it an action piece, but they didn't have the budget for an action film. This was $1.7 million, and it made $8.8 million. It's it's terrible. It's a failure. And it was this sort of a... for the the end of this original series. Mm. It's a complete waste of time. If it had never been made, at least it would have ended on a really high note, maybe the highest note of the four. Shouldn't have been made. What did you think of it? I'm torn between shouldn't have been made and should have been made better. But in all seriousness, you're absolutely right. The note of 
possibly hopeful, um, uh, ambivalence of the, uh, the fourth film really didn't require further exploration. It's Certainly not if you're going to abandon all the, um, exploration of social ills that had been woven through three and four and just go back to we're quite scared of atomic bombs well yeah it was going back to the whole thing about if you think about it the cycle of war uh, will always continue we'll always keep trying to destroy each other and that's been done far better elsewhere this is not the place to do that no well you you can't at least unless you've got something really some really good dialogue to really get through it and some symbolic stuff as opposed to really just a, a tedious series of people talking to each other but it's, it's all just exposition There's, exactly it's all just well we've got to go to the city what city well the city blah 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 and then when we were in the city da 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 and if also if you're going to look um, at, at a situation if you're going to examine a situation where there is violence and aggression on two sides of a, a battle you need to be able to uh, zoom in to a very personal conflict. You need to be able to see the complete um, character of the the handful of parties that are involved to really be able to understand that you know they both have motives and they both have character flaws and they both have hopes and they both have um, heroism within them and and compare them on that kind of microscopic level. If you're going to pull back. And look at uh, a conflict between a group of people who were previously oppressed and the uh, somewhat battered remnants of their oppressors. You can't set that up in a way that says, well, it's six or one and a half a dozen of the other, really, isn't it? Because it's not. That's not how it works. Initially, writer Paul Dane, who had provided the script for every previous sequel, so he wrote two, three, and four, was hired to provide a story treatment for the fifth film in the series, so a treatment, like a, this is what will happen. Dane withdrew from the project prior to completing the screenplay due to health reasons. Screenwriters John Williams Corrington and Joyce Hooper Corrington were brought in after the success of their film, The Omega Man, a film I cited as an example of the kind of shit movie they made back then. The Omega Man was a terrible translation of I Am Legend. Mm. Starring... Charlton Heston? Charlton Heston. Although prior to that, neither one of them had written any science fiction films, and indeed Joyce Carrington later admitted that they had never seen any of the Apes films prior to being hired to write the script for Battle. Dane was available for the initial rewrites, but was hired to come in and do a final polish on the turd, sorry, the script, making minor changes to the script that the Corringtons had written. Dane was given a story credit despite the appeal to the Writers Guild of America for shared credit on the screenplay. Dane claimed to have rewritten... 90% 90% of the dialogue, and he altered the ending. The original script with Corrington's ended in a, on a playground with ape and human children fighting. Dane chose to go with a close-up of a statue of Caesar with a tear falling from its eye, unwarranted, by the way, Dane, which Joyce Corrington characterised as stupid. I actually <laughs> agree with Corrington on this one. Mm. It, turns our, it turned our stomachs when we saw it. The Writers Guild of America ruled that that was the Corrington's, but it also turned ours. I was like, it ended on the statue. I was like, okay, that's pretty good. And then a tear rolled out. So I was like, the statue's fucking crying. The Writers Guild of America ruled in favour of the Corrington's for sole screenplay credit. Gotcha. Oh, I was thinking that Dane was like saying, just take my name off this fucking thing. But no, it was the other way around. He was trying to claim credit for it. 
Uh, while Roddy McDowell returns, John Houston appears as the lawgiver and veteran. Oh, yeah, by the way, he's the, the lawgiver, so he's the statue that gets pulled over in the second one and burned. The veteran actor Lou Ayers appears as Mandemus. He was probably one of the best things in it. Also, the Virgil, this new ape, with his, like, put, like I declare it to be the most whimsical ape of the season. Like, this is supposed to be ten years after the apes couldn't speak. Nothing is given as an example of how they can speak suddenly. There's no scientific reason behind, not even an attempt, like, not even a sci-fi reason. They just go, oh, they can speak now. Not even like, oh, um, because of ape osmosis. The casting of this film otherwise showed the diminished stature and budget of the series. In other words, it's the law of diminishing returns writ small. France Nguyen, who at the time was arguably the biggest star and most of the top-billed actor, received poor billing in a small role, though the extended DVD cut restored much of her screen time. Hang on, France Nguyen. Oh, yeah, she was the uh, the Asian lady, the irradiated woman in the city, ah. who doesn't know how to use an intercom. Yeah. <clears throat> so, like, she starts using the intercom and goes, oh, hang on, and that presses the button, and, and that is, we did 21 takes, and that was the best one. McDonald sees his human friend as portrayed in the film by Austin Stoker. Harry Rhodes played the character named McDonald in the previous film, Conquest. The change in actors were noted to, in dialogue, indicating that Stoker's McDonald was the brother of Rhodes' McDonald, Rhodey. In his novelization of the Moody, David Gerald wrote that the original McDonald had died in the interim, but does not specify a cause. Uh, it's uh, it's boring even reading about this. <laughs> the director was unhappy with the script, um, as well as the scope of the production, which he felt was minuscule. Could have used a bigger budget to assist in the portrayal of the, and then in quotation marks, battle. Thompson had agreed to direct without a script in place and regretted that Paul Dan could have... This just shouldn't have been made. Couldn't have been on the project through the writing process. The whole thing was multi-bugged. Didn't I say? When we were watching, it was like, this feels like it's been meddled with. It was meddled with. It was compromised. They shat it out. Reaction. Horror. <laughs> there has been some debate over the or what year the main body of the film takes place. The year 2670 AD is shown at the beginning of the film during the framing segment. The rest of the film is told about in flashback and no exact date is stated directly. However, there are two lines of dialogue that do offer a clue, though they conflict with each other. Mendes states that there's been 12 years of peace, which would place the film somewhere around or after the year 2003. This assumes that the nuclear war has destroyed human civilization took place immediately after the previous film. Immediately after. So it's like the apes rise up and let's break out the fucking nuclear warheads. Seriously, the apes were rising up with rifles. There's no reason to nuke your cities. That doesn't make any sense. No. Now, this is something you bring in the army. And let me tell you, folks, the army can deal with a few apes. Do they have an army at this point, though? There's, there's a reason why at the end of Rise... The army can't deal with a few apes because the army have got other things to worry about. Mm. After the previous film, Conquest was set in 91. At the end of the battle, Mandi- Mandemus says he lived in the ape city for armory for 27 years, placing the film in around the year 2018 or later. His statements help make more sense of Virgil's earlier comments that Mandemus was his teacher when he was a boy. When he was a boy, had surely been be- before 10 years ago when the apes couldn't even talk. Mm. Though that could have occurred if they were in captivity before Conquest. Those who adhere to the 2003 date cite that Culp did not look 27 years older than he did in Conquest. Those who cite the 2018 date claim that Mendes' statement does not preclude 15 years of war after Conquest that ended in the final nuclear exchange. Several reference materials such as the Sacred Scrolls website I found scrolls 
And Rich Handley's timelines of the Planet of the Apes use the later date, but others disagree and cite the early date. You know what, guys? It doesn't matter. You're thinking about it a lot more than the filmmakers did. And we like to do that on the show as well, but usually about films that are worth it. This film is not worth debating over. It's a piece of shit. It shouldn't have been made. But there are better films out there to make a fuss over. Can, can we finish on this yes. one? <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on, because um, this is horrible. To summarise the the original five movies, see one, three, and four. Skip two. All you need to know is the Earth was destroyed. The exact confluence of events doesn't even make any sense anyway. And skip five, because you don't need to know. Is there any bit of this film we can talk about? There's nothing, is there? No. There's nothing. It's, it's, we just, we just sat there for 82 minutes and nothing happened. Ugh, God, the things we do for you people. Okay, you know what I'm actually kind of looking forward to? The Tim Burton version. The Tim Burton version! I never thought I'd find myself saying that! That's how bad it got, folks. Don't worry about it. I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Neural Neural Handshake handshake complete. Complete.